Hello and welcome to the second installment of Reflections at 100. This is a mini-series from the International Affairs Journal team at Chatham House. This year, 2022, we are celebrating 100 years of publishing. To celebrate our century-old archive, we have pulled together a number of archive collections to explore how certain topics have been covered in the journal over the last 100 years. Our first archive collection looked at UK foreign policy, so in the first episode of this mini-series, we spoke to the editor and a couple of the contributors to find out the past, present and the future of the field. So go and listen to that if you haven't already. In this episode, we're focusing on our second archive collection, all about war and conflict. Now, this journal began in the aftermath of World War I. It survived World War II. And today, the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. So the topic is very much alive and well. I'm Christina Chortel. I'm the Managing Editor of International Affairs, and I'm going to be speaking to the guest editors of the Archive Collection, Andrew Dorman and Tracy German. And I'm Isabel Matreja. I'm the Marketing Manager for the journal, and I'm going to be focusing on one of the issues that's covered in the collection, nuclear weapons. So I'll be speaking to TV Paul later in the podcast. Before we kick off, the introduction and all the articles that we're going to be talking about are free to access for the month of April. So make sure you go online and read them. You can find links in the show notes. And I'm here with the editors of our next centenary archive collection on 100 years of war and conflict. Andrew Dorman is Professor of International Relations at King's College London, and he's also the editor of International Affairs. And Tracy German is Professor of Conflict and Security, also at King's College London. So I really enjoyed reading your introduction. It's almost like a potted history of the more violent bits of the last 100 years. But as I suggest, you had to tackle a huge number of articles within the archive. And you decided to organize this into six themes. So I was curious, why did you pick these themes and not others? You're right, Christina. I think one of the issues Trace and I really found was the sheer scale of pieces on war and conflict. Unfortunately, for the last hundred years, war and conflict has been an ongoing and popular theme of the journal because it has reflected what's been going on in the world around us. And what we wanted to do was to try and break it into some degree of groupings to group articles together. So we came up with these, these categories of thinking to, to try and give us some themes to work around, to engage with and discuss. We could have cut it a whole series of different ways, but we thought this was one way of trying to capture the whole of war and conflict from the way wars are started and to the way they are undertaken, to the way people think about wars, the theories of wars, to wars coming to an end, a cessation, and the aftermath of war. Tracy, what was your favourite theme? I think, as Andrew's described there, that you know the fact that we tried to encapsulate how wars arise, how we try and prevent them, but also looking forwards and trying to assess what wars of the future may look like. And I think, for me, that was a... It was very interesting going over the pieces and looking at how writers have attempted to forecast the future of warfare, the changing character of conflict over the years, and where they see it going. And for me, I think that was the most one of the most interesting areas that we looked at. So we have to address the elephant in the room, I think. It's pretty clear that most of the authors on the list, and not all of them, but most, are a pretty homogenous bunch. 
And you you take pains in your introduction to be very explicit about this and the reasons for this. I was curious, do you think this lack of diversity in the people writing about war and conflict has led to a lack of diversity in thinking about war and conflict? I think that's an interesting question. I do think that if we don't see a diversity of, of different writing and different thinking on war and conflict, then there is going to be a lack of diversity in terms of thinking about it and how to, for example, how to avoid it. Certainly, I think for us, this is one of the biggest themes that came out from from going through the archive is this lack of diversity, this sense that, yes, war and conflict is enduring, but actually so is the, you know, the fact that the study of war and conflict broadly defines really remains dominated by predominantly male voices and predominantly voices from the global north. Um, and I think we continue to see that today with coverage of war and conflict and writing, scholarly writing on it, um, that it tends to be dominated by by the male voice. And I think even in the selection of articles that we've chosen, that the female voices that we've selected, the, the articles, some of them have tended to predominate in, you know, some of the softer areas. So, you know, post-war repatriation, for example, the, the role of the military in conservation. So I think there's some interesting and important issues to think about moving forwards. And um, Andrew, have you noticed any change in your role as editor? I think we've seen a number of elements of change in terms of who's written for the journal, how they've written and what they've written about over the time. And partly that reflects the history of the journal. You know, the journal was set up two years after the Chatham House itself was set up. And initially it's a record and it's, it's a reporting of, for those members who were unable to attend the House for an evening presentation and evening discussion, a way for them to find out what was said at the House. So you're getting, initially it's very much practitioners, it's very much politicians, there's an occasional military leader, it's London's intelligentsia, it's a few academics talking and presenting on the House on various issues and what we were looking at in terms of related to war and conflict. Very much male-dominated, very much reflecting, since very much, I say, English society of the, of the 20s and 30s, and that's what it was. We start to get some an international flavouring of speakers who are passing through London, who are representative of other nations in London in the, from the late 20s into the 1930s. We get, after the Second World War, an increasing involvement of academics. And now as we look at the journal as it is today, it's very much dominated by academia. So if we go back and look, you know, we've got an early piece in via one of the British Prime Ministers reporting on a disarmament conference looking to look at arms control, uh, which we just don't get nowadays. So I think we've seen part of the change of who's written for the journal on about war and conflict is a reflection of how the journal itself has seen change. But as also Tracy highlighted, it, it is still very much dominated, as, as indeed the subject is very much dominated by the male, northern, very much a Western voice in many respects. And as part of that is also a reflection of who has access to it. So during the Cold War, we didn't see... There weren't a lot of speeches by people from the Soviet Union and so forth, which is probably not surprising because it's a reflection of an antagonistic relationship and therefore you are only getting the voices from, largely from the West. We are seeing 
a greater profusion of, of names. It's interesting, one of the pieces we put in our collection is a, a piece thinking about war from a Chinese perspective and how the Chinese are thinking about the idea of a revolution in military affairs. So much of the literature we focus on in the West has been about Western views of defense transformation, of revolution, military affairs, fourth generation warfare, and all these different ideas. But actually, one of the reflections we need to reflect on is that others think about this. It's not just the West. It's not just men who think about this, but others have ideas and views upon this. One of the things that Chasey was really identifying is if we limit those whose voices we hear, we limit the debate and understanding for what we can take out of this. So it's been a real refreshing to see other voices in there. We try to bring those into this collection. For example, on the earlier piece, looking at um, sort of arms control and non-proliferation, to hear a, an African voice on this was really interesting because it gave as a different perspective, a different understanding. And one of the problems we see, and we see this, I think, with the Ukraine and the, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the moment, there's a lot of analysis is taking our own thoughts and going, this is our understanding, and then that's how our opponent, that's how others must think. And this is clearly not the case. And as part of this, and one of the way the journals reached out, we've got a special section coming up later in the year looking at feminist views on global nuclear politics. And to very much emphasise, and we saw this in, in our collection, how much the debates on nuclear strategy is a very much a Western male views of nuclear strategy. So... The collection is not only backwards-looking. Your last theme is on the future of warfare. So you were writing the introduction and selecting your articles in the first few weeks of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I wondered if that made you think differently about the future of warfare. I think what Russia's invasion of Ukraine has showed us is perhaps that the dangers of prevailing narratives and this sense that we think we know what might be coming and we think we understand what our adversary is thinking but actually do we really i think that prevailing themes with regards to to conflict and warfare in in the west in recent years particularly since 2014 has been on hybrid warfare gray zone sub-threshold um, and all the ways that actors such as Russia would seek to achieve their strategic objectives without the use of direct military force. And I think what we've seen in, in recent weeks is actually, you know, the, the predominance of conventional force and actually that adversaries, our adversaries have been very much focused on the use of conventional force for a number of years. And it's something that perhaps we in the West have moved away from in recent years and perhaps need to refocus on whether it was counterinsurgency or then hybrid warfare. I think being distracted by these so-called adjective wars, you know, hybrid or, or you know, sub-threshold or grey zone, when actually what we, you know, our adversaries have been focusing on is is warfare and, and war. And I, I think for me, that is one of the big takeaways from, from recent months, actually, is how much military force remains at the heart of war and conflict. I think Tracy very much picks up some of the things we think we see. One of the consistent themes throughout 100 years of international affairs is people talking about the future of warfare 
and at future conflict. And it's easy to critique those for getting bits wrong. And one of the challenges of, of predicting the future, as we know, is it often doesn't, it seldom happens as, as we outline, partly because sometimes we have debates about this and thinking, and therefore that prevents things happening that way. But also just predicting the future is very difficult. You know, We know how difficult it is to predict the weather, let alone predict the future and character of conflict of the future. And I'm very much struck by that the first piece we selected on that looked about air power and you know the debates we see in the 20s and 30s about air power and the piece we predict was you know when the advocates of air power and the bomber will always get through and this is a future of warfare and we're increasingly seeing that with more recently the idea of cyber warfare we talked about and Tracy identified this whole debates about hybrid warfare. I also think the other dimension we see within this and this is our academics in our sense. Are elements of fashionistas that we, we, we they, they follow fads, they follow fashion, and we what we see, and I think we saw in the fifties and sixties into the seventies, that nuclear strategy dominated. That's one way we had it as a sub theme of strategy, as a separate theme within our context. That we that was what academics largely focused on, to the detriment of studying other elements of conflict. So it partly explains you know the failures in vietnam and other parts of the world and not just focus on america in terms of understanding the character of conflict because we focus so much and the military focus so much on nuclear strategy nuclear strategy has gone out of fashion as tracy identified we've had a whole season one since the end of the cold war including the coinistas and their debates and we've got into the hybrid warfare the adjective warfare as tracy was identified and what it's meant is that other elements of conflict such as interstate warfare has been forgotten about Partly, this is down to Western military experiences that they were fighting counterinsurgency campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan and have not practiced interstate warfare and training for it. But also, we haven't really thought it through because we tend to follow a fashion. So I suspect in the years to come, interstate warfare will since become back into fashion. Similarly, uh, along those lines, you know, NATO went out of fashion in terms of academic study. I suspect, as indeed the study of Russia, I suspect Russian and the study of NATO will be back in fashion. Just to, to follow up, really, and I think bringing together a couple of the issues that we've talked about, Andrew was talking there about the trends in academic writing. And I think there is a, a danger that it's there are certain trends in scholarly work and be it uh, a, a nuclear strategy or counterinsurgency or a focus on hybrid warfare if we're not actually looking at topics and issues that lie outside of those trends and we're not listening to different voices it's very easy to become blinkered and to then miss the big issues what may come around the corner and I think that brings together this issue of ensuring that there are a diversity of different voices writing on a diversity of very different themes and not necessarily what is the trend or the, the latest prevailing narrative within academia and within the, the, the policy field. And I think it's really important and it's very difficult. I'm sure as a journal editor, it's incredibly difficult to try and incorporate a real range of issues and trying to find the ones that are you know going to add the most value to the debate but i i do think it's just what we're talking about here really emphasizes the importance of diversity in a range of different areas and issues you do a really good job in the introduction of tracing these changing fashions but i think what's also striking is that 
some topics have remained popular in the last 100 years and they are being written about in similar ways as well. So do you think in 100 years when the editor of International Affairs is putting together the next centenary archive, do you think they'll be covering similar themes as you have? I think there are some areas where they will do. I think, unfortunately, I, I, I say this as somebody who write, themselves writes on defence and security, in, in many respects, the way the world currently is, as an analyst, as an academic who studies the subject, it, it, it's really fascinating. It's all that's going on, and it's such, you think you know, it, it gets really interesting, fascinating, it's exciting. But as a human being, you think, actually, I'd like it to be quite quiet, you know, peace to break out. And I think one of the things that strikes me is despite all the efforts and the laudable efforts, and we know we had, we mentioned Philip Noel Baker, you know, won a Nobel Peace Prize and passionate advocate for disarmament. I expect, you know, we will continue to see throughout the next 100 years people looking for arms control, non-proliferation, for disarmament. But I suspect that we will still be part of what the innate part of the international system, the way the international relations works. So I think our you know, our successes in, in doing this will be talking about disarmament, arms control, non-proliferation, and the continuity of warfare and conflict. And in many respects, that's sad, because, you know, going back to those in early days of international affairs, it would, you know, it, it would have been ideal if they had managed to achieve what they were trying to achieve. Whether that's down to man's innate aggression or whatever, there's a whole series of, there's a whole literature on arguing about why wars and conflicts break out, um, which we'd encourage you to read on. I would echo that. I think that war and conflict is likely to be enduring and things such as, you know, the, the, the role of technology. I'm sure in a hundred years there will still be debates going on about new technological advances and what that might mean for war and conflict in the future, as well as, you know, some of the more localised you know, specific conflicts. Unfortunately, I don't think it is going to go away. I, I think we'd both be delighted if in another 100 years there, there were no articles to be written in this theme <laughs> on this topic. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, it looks like may well endure for another 100 years. It's amazing to think how much effort man, and it's probably mainly man actually, put into thinking about and conducting war and conflict. I mean, if you think about the amount of effort, energy and resources, and our response at the moment to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is about how NATO responds, how individual countries respond, the commitment of, of Germany to rearmament and other nations to rearmament and how quickly you respond. But then the slower burns of climate change and so forth don't have that level of resources thrown at them and put into them because it's easier to sell war than it is to sell long-term things like climate change. So maybe to finish on a slightly more upbeat note, could you tell us about three things that you've learned editing the collection and one thing that surprised you? So you can split up the things that you've learned, but I would like to hear a surprising thing from each of you. I think is how much we focus on preparing for, planning for and conducting war and how little we spent on actually thinking about the aftermath of war. Um, there's some fascinating pieces. We, uh, we touched on some of the work on, on refugees. We touched on, and there's, there's a whole literature on women, peace and security and the aftermath of that. But it's how many voices and how many groups. Because one of the things that war does, it impacts everybody. 
all communities. We're seeing this in, in Ukraine. You think about the, the tragedy that's going on there with the number of people who are fleeing uh, uh, and what it means in terms of leaving their homes, leaving their families, maybe never to return again and what this means. So the, I think one of the things that really struck strikes me is how little we focus on the aftermath, the impact of war. And I was one of the, well, our writers who put a lot of effort to trying to prevent war, helped to, to try and get um, the Jews out of Germany before the first, Second World War. She did work in terms of, in the aftermath of the Second World War, including getting people to come who'd come out of the concentration camps and to help rehabilitate them. It's amazing how committed some people are and, and the work they do. I mean, building probably on that, the, the, the huge focus that goes into, you know, the advent of new weapons, be it nuclear or chemical or moving forwards, the role of AI, that the huge amount of focus and effort goes into that. And, and I know this is based on what has been published in the journal, but less so on, on trying to prevent reaching conflict and war in the first place and I do think it's so interesting that we're talking about this the journal being set up in the aftermath of the first world war and the hope at that point that that would be the war to end all wars and yet a hundred years of articles on war and conflict and so much is focused on on prosecuting war and conflict and I, I think far less on you know seeking to prevent or you know build peace afterwards and i think when you see it laid out in black and white it makes for fairly bleak reading i think so tracy it sounds like this is something that you've learned but also something that has surprised you yeah i think so um i think that 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 is both something i've learned and something which has surprised me but i think you know, on a slightly lighter note, the real surprise that came out of this for me was that there was a, you know, an American journalist called H.R. Knickerbocker. You know, There's an extraordinary name to be publishing under in, in the 30s. Yeah, there are certainly some interesting names in the uh, in the footnotes. Andrew, what surprised you? I suppose what surprised what you find, I find really interesting, it sounds right, is we had General Weygand, who's one of the pieces we recommended, who spoke at the House in writing to International Affairs about the defence of France. And he wrote in the summer of 1939. So he talks about how France would defend. He'd been former chief of staff, head of the French army. He was then moved out to the, the um, I think it was the Orient Theatre, as the French would term it, at the start of the Second World War, to fight, fight in that camp. But he's also, so he talks about the defence of France in theory. And then he's the same individual who is called back to France in May 1940, as the Germans have broken through French Allied and British and German and Belgian lines, they've broken through to try and stem the German advance. So normally we talk about generals reflecting on their their experiences in retirement. Here we have someone who talks about the theory of war and then has to try and operationalize it. You know, and we know from history that he, he failed to do this, and I'm not blaming him for that, given the situation and where they were. But it was fast, it's a fascinating piece to see someone who talks about how are they, they're going to defend France and then actually has to do it. It's, 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 it's the counter-reversal of what we normally see in pieces of generals and admirals and so forth talk about their operational experience of war and how, they conduct, how, how good they were at that, at that level. So it, it, I find that really fascinating. It was really intriguing to see somebody do the theory of war and then have to do that practice of war. 
so I find that interesting. I suppose. And the other thing that surprised me is how little, you know, there's a lot of historians have written in, in, the, in the journal over the year, but how little we ever learn from history and how much we try to make history fit the contemporary facts. So we love to use, and you see policymakers do it, but also academics do it, that they, a situation occurs, and we're seeing this at the moment with Ukraine, is the Russians have invaded Ukraine. What historical analogy can I, we root out of our tool bag to, to link this to? And therefore, we try and use that as a template to respond, not realising that everything is contextualised and not having any real depth of understanding. So I, I, I find the historical illiteracy of so many of our both historians and our wider academics it, it, it's surprising. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Tracy. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been great. Hey guys, this is Isabel. I'm at the International Studies Association Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm with a very exciting guest today, TV Paul. Welcome, TV. Thank you for having me. So, TV is James McGill Professor of International Relations at McGill University in Canada. He is an IR veteran, um, specializes in security, South Asia, and lots of other things. TV's um, written for IA many times, including editing the September 2021 edition on deglobalization. But today we're here to talk about nuclear weapons in South Asia. So your 2016 article was co-authored with Manish Shankar, and it's titled Nuclear Doctrines and Stable Strategic Relationships, The Case of South Asia. And this has been included in our archive collection on war and conflict. So let's start simple. What is a nuclear doctrine? A uh, nuclear doctrine is a part of the grand strategy of a state that uh, deals specifically with the nuclear aspect of its security policy. How the nuclear weapons will be procured, what they will do with it, and how they will be used or not used, and what are the uses of nuclear weapons beyond war and peace in terms of foreign policy objectives, larger goals, etc. So by looking at a doctrine, you can tell if the country has a first use, will it go for uh, uh, nuclear weapons before the other side uses it, uh, or is it uh, no use, no first use? So that's the important question to look into. The second is uh, deployment patterns, uh, how much they incorporate in actual war fighting, or is it uh, mostly in terms of projected ideas or hypothetical situations. It's, it's usually not sometimes very clear what exactly countries would do because nuclear weapons are there for deterrence and creating ambiguity in the minds of the opponent is one purpose. So therefore that's why the doctrines sometimes are not at all uh, clear and in South Asia we have that problem. Uh, often they try to play with it but uh, we do have some ideas of the doctrines of both the parties. So I think you've already answered some of my second question there about why it's important. But, you know, as we're filming this, the situation in Russia and Ukraine continues, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So can you explain a little bit about why it's so important to understand nuclear doctrines for a situation like that? Yes, actually, it's important for uh, every conflict zones because it tells you that the country is prepared to use nuclear weapons under certain situations. And Putin made a couple of references to it. 
in fact, very threatening statement, that he is trying to deter the West and NATO from intervening directly, definitely, but even indirectly. Beyond a threshold, he is willing to raise the bar and use weapons so that he calls the existential deterrence of Russia is protected. So the doctrine has uh, really gave the kind of intensity to this conflict. People have to now look at that dimension if and when Russia will use it. And we know that doctrine has changed over time. It was no first use uh, doctrine. Now it is kind of a first use. And NATO also has a first use doctrine. So these two doctrines are highly uh, competing each other. And it's a potential for disaster if either side thinks that the other side will blink and won't follow through. So doctrines can be believed, doctrines cannot be, need not be believed, but uh, obviously NATO's reluctance to directly intervene has quite a bit to do with the Russian doctrine of potential use of nuclear weapons. So deterrence is working there. But in South Asia, of course, the doctrines matter that uh, we have an active conflict zone and active deterrence happening in many contexts. And therefore, we need to know what exactly the parties like to signal. So the, the doctrines are also a way to signal to the other side your intentions, your capabilities, your goals, and what you would do with nuclear weapons under crisis conditions. Yes, so your article specifically looks at India and Pakistan. So can you just say a little bit more about what makes the doctrines there particularly risky or responsible? Well, there are some elements of responsible behavior but there are quite a few elements of concern that has been there since uh, they both became nuclear weapon states. The first concern is this is a very close place in terms of uh, geographic proximity. And so there's not much time for action reaction. So if somebody decides to start a war, then there is that risk of accidental war, nuclear use, inadvertent or uh, even something happening with decision makers not even planning. And recently, for instance, there was an Indian missile fired into Pakistani territory, and uh, India says it was an accident. Now, imagine that had a nuclear tips on it, or if Pakistan thought it was a real war. In fact, Pakistan was ready to retaliate. Then only the Indians called them and said it was just a an accident, no, no harm in, intended, but clearly such conditions are not at all good because there's little communication between the parties. As far as we know, they don't talk to each other. And political level at the uh, leadership level, there is hardly any, maybe even official level, there isn't much. And then there is this China factor, which is another thing changed since 2016 in terms of the active participation of China in the South Asian regional order. We're on the side of Pakistan now, and then also changes in Kashmir, its, it's a composition uh, under Indian rule. Despite that, to great extent, both sides are, as far as we know, still maintaining a de-alert or de-mated uh, situation. In other words, they have not uh, linked the weapons and the missiles together, which is a technical process, and so that gives them some time to react if necessary. Also, Pakistan was supposed to deploy the short-range Nasser missile on the Indian border. As far as we know, that has not been properly done, although there are rumors about it. 
The reason being it's a highly technically advanced system if they ever develop the short-range weapons. But if that is deployed, then it is a little worrisome in the sense, will Pakistan use that weapon for situations where India advances some short-term military uh, attacks on Pakistani territory or Kashmir for that matter? So there are quite a few uh, situations that generate uh, difficulties. They don't have confidence-building measures. They have one that is every year they have sent a report of their nuclear facilities. But there is also an arms race going on in the South Asian region. Now, Pakistan has some 150 weapons or enough capability more than India. So this arms race is picking up and the India-China side too. So it, it has become a trilateral uh, complex competition and that has its implications for deterrent stability. So, again, you've already touched on it a little bit then, but what has changed since 2016, particularly in South Asia, apart from the China factor? Well, the big part on the Indian case is since 2014, India is ruled by a Hindu nationalist government of Narendra Modi, who has taken a more assertive role with respect to Pakistan relationships. Initially, they tried to, you know, they invited uh, Nawaz Sharif to the inaugural ceremony and all that. But then in reaction to some of the Pakistani-sponsored activities, they've decided to cut off all the relations. So there's not much going on. And then they also decided to incorporate Kashmir as a part of India. It was a separate uh, special uh, autonomous status that has been removed. Now it is, uh, you know, three divisions are created. And uh, the idea is to forget about this Article 360 that gave the Kashmiri special rights. And that has been a major change. So there is quite a bit of tension with Pakistan. But Pakistan has been probably less active than it used to, possibly because they have so much to chew of the Afghan refugees coming in. And also the military-civilian relationship is constantly under tension. And right now, Imran Khan may lose the power very soon. So the military is playing different roles there. And of course, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan has created a different set of constraints and opportunities. More importantly, China's entry into Pakistan with this, what you call, uh, CPEC or China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and that is a big infrastructure project, 62 billion project infrastructure, part of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Now, many people think that is a debt trap for Pakistan, but from a conflict point of view, perhaps China has an incentive to mellow down things with Pakistan or encouraging Pakistan not to create too many conflict with India because then these infrastructure projects, some of them pass through disputed Kashmir region of under Pakistani control. So there are these changes. Then, of course, the U.S.-India relationship. There is that um, quad or quadrilateral forum. So China-India uh, relationship has become tenser. There's a border conflict uh, picked up last two, three years, four years, actually. And so, in other words, the region has become a lot more unstable with a certain amount of stability but there is potential for escalation if China invades Taiwan, for instance, or if the China-India border 
tensions again ratchet up. You know, like they seem to come and go. And right now there's a, a lull, but will it last? When the weather improves, will they start poking around too much? So a lot of these uh, questions resonate with respect. These, these three countries are nuclear armed. And they don't have an arms control mechanism. They don't have an engagement with respect to confidence building. So it's high time if you want to talk about nuclear stability, some level of discourse and engagement is necessary, very unlikely given the kind of nationalist leaders all these three places have right now. So notwithstanding the changes which have happened in the last few years, is there anything you would actually change about your article and the argument you made, or do you think it still stands? Much of it still stands. I think the key would be whether these doctrines have evolved beyond the original idea of India's case, they have changed quite a bit. They say now under certain circumstances, they could abandon their no first use, depending on the situation, but which was not the original intent. Um, Pakistani side, the, the idea was minimum deterrent. Now, the way they are weaponizing and arming it seems kind of a massive retaliation for Pakistan because it's if you have 150 weapons, uh, almost all Indian cities are targets. For India, it's also changing probably in terms of whether is it minimum deterrent anymore. If not, what exactly is leading this to? Is it the argument people made about against nuclearization of continent was that arms races are going to happen and because of technological reasons, political reasons, and there's a, there's a dynamics of arms race, you know, military-industrial complex. Now the question is, how can we incorporate that in this very fluid uh, regional environment? And that's something that for the work is needed when the region changes, when the domestic regimes change, and when the region also changes, the situation changes, and how does that affect these doctrines, and how do these doctrines themselves affect their security policies? So there's a two-way street here. Doctrines are humanly created. They're not just out there, but some elite planners are working on it. And we need to know whether they are thinking through these uh, possibilities and contingencies more carefully or not. So yeah, certainly still an active area of research. Mm. But thank you so much, TV. It's been really interesting to speak to you today, and we look forward to hearing more. Thank you for having me. So I think it's fair to say that the discussion with Tracy and Andrew was uh, quite wide-ranging. We didn't only cover the first century of the journal, but also the next 100 years of war and conflict. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> so what did, you, what did you learn from your discussion with TV? My discussion with TV was fascinating. And as a half-Indian person myself, it's really interesting to hear about an element of the India-Pakistan conflict, which I know very little about. And I thought one thing in particular that you talked about really struck me, which is the impact of Chinese investment on their relationship. So he said that Pakistan now have a, or have quite, for quite a long time, had a relationship with China. And actually the fact that China are investing in Pakistan through the Belt and Road Initiative and you know other investment schemes may actually mean that they have a reason to prevent conflict. So it's just interesting to think about how outside factors could actually, you know, potentially stop the or dampen down the conflict between India and Pakistan. That's really interesting. So what about you? What did you take from your conversation with Andrew and Tracy? 
I was surprised by how a serious topic, for example, like nuclear weapons can come in and out of fashion in academia. So they described how this has changed over the last few decades. And it's interesting that it's probably going to come back into fashion now with the conflict in Ukraine. Oh, fascinating. So they're as fickle as we are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, I think we've learned a lot and we're looking forward to next time. So this is something that we've covered a lot recently in the journal as well. Next time, we're going to be covering China and its role in the world. So that will be out along with the archive collection in June. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we hope you enjoyed, guys. Bye. <laughs>